0: So we are several weeks into this series focusing on the spiritual disciplines, and today we come to the discipline of service. And while our text for today has a lot to say about the value of service in a Christian's life, uh, this text will immediately raise a different question. What is greatness? And that is a huge question for us to take on this morning. So what is greatness? Well, that's also the question the young man asked himself. You see, he was only in his early 20s, yet he was a highly celebrated athlete. He was from a wealthy family, he had a comfortable inheritance. He had fame, he had celebrity, he was rapidly reaching the status of prominence in society. Yet, in spite of all of that, he still wrestled with this question What is greatness? Now I imagine him hunched over his desk, just eyes squeezed shut, furrowed brow, hands just cupping his face, taking these long, deliberate breaths, just laboring to answer this question, what is greatness? Now by the world's standards, this young man seemingly had it all, and he was well on his way to greatness, yet his heart was unsettled, he was wrenching as he struggled to reconcile, to answer this question. What is greatness? Is this it, he thought? Is greatness found in wealth and fame? Is greatness found in piling up noteworthy accomplishments? Is this it? Am I already on this road to greatness? You see, he was genuinely and authentically looking for the answer. He wasn't just being philosophical. He was trying to get at what greatness looks like in the day-to-day of a person's life because this young man wanted to be great. So what is greatness? Well, that is the question immediately raised by today's text. And hopefully by the end of our time together, you will just have a clear picture of what greatness is and of what it is not. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be starting in verse 20. Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. And the first truth that we will be able to identify with this morning is that like James and John, we often value greatness for ourselves. Matthew 20, starting in verse 20, God's Word reads, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. By my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So the text immediately reveals that there is a problem being displayed within the hearts of these two sons of Zebedee. Now the woman who is the mother of the sons of Zebedee is a woman likely named Salome. Salome uh, is a Mary's sister. She is Jesus' aunt. She is the mother of the disciples James and John. And it is important to note that while Salome is the one interacting with Jesus, that her request is likely coming from her sons, James and John. We know that in the parallel account of this text in Mark 10, James and John are the ones who personally lay this request at the feet of Jesus themselves, not their mother, Salome. And uh, a common way of figuring out what is happening in the differences in Mark's Gospel versus Matthew's Gospel, is, uh, is just to say that Mark deliberately omitted Salome's involvement so that his readers would have a clear understanding that it was James and John who were truly behind the request. And that interpretation fits in with the exchange that we see taking place here in Matthew's Gospel. Keep in mind, Jesus responds to the request. And as he responds in verse 22, his response is not directed to Salome, Right? The text actually says you do not know what you are asking. And those two little pronouns, you, are plural. So Jesus is either addressing James, John, and Salome, or which is more likely just James and John. And then the text shows us that James and John are the ones who engage in this exchange with Jesus, not Salome. They're the ones who respond back. So it's most likely James and John who are making this request through their mother. So as readers... Uh, We can assume this wasn't just a mother seeking to promote her son. This was James and John prompting their mother into action. So according to Matthew, Salome, likely prompted by her sons, uh, approaches Jesus. And let's take a look at what she does. The text says that she approaches Jesus and she kneels down before him. So she comes and she takes this worshipful posture before the Lord. Kneeling before Him in acknowledgement of His Lordship. And this is totally appropriate. But as we'll see, her posture does not match her request, does it? So I initially said that the text would reveal a problem within James and John. And we will see that problem with crystal clarity as we look at Salome's request. So what is she asking here? Well, verse 21 reads, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. This is just a huge request. In the context of the day, favorites of the king were allowed to be close to the king. They were granted proximity to the king. And to hold a seat next to the king was a position of great status and honor. But remember, Jesus is no mere king. He is the Messiah. His kingdom is no mere kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is eternal and boundless and unmatched. They are asking to rule next to Christ for eternity. But even more so, they are asking for the most important positions of honor in that kingdom. It is quite a request. Well, Salome's physical posture does not match her request, she is standing before the Lord of all lords and she is concerned with the glory of her sons. James and John are standing before the king of all kings, and they are concerned with exaltation for themselves. The kneeling before Jesus is appropriate. The content of what they are asking is not. So James and John's problem is this. They are pursuing their own glory. Their problem is that they have this mixed-up view of greatness. And their problem is also that they have severely and grossly misunderstood Jesus' teaching on greatness up until this point. Remember back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, He tells them, it is the meek who will inherit the earth. In chapter 18, the disciples with this question about greatness on their mind come before the Lord and they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In response, Jesus takes a child He places that child in the midst of the disciples and He says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 19, Jesus encounters this rich young ruler who asks our Lord what he must do to have eternal life. After an initial exchange, Jesus encourages him to sell off everything he has to come and to follow him. But the man cannot bear with the thought of parting with his earthly wealth even for the chance of following the Christ, so he leaves with an empty, heavy heart. Jesus then pulls his disciples aside for a moment of teaching and he says, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's already got special things in store for these 12 men, his disciples. But then he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And catch this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus repeats that message. Chapter 20, verse 16, saying, So the last will be first, And the first will be last. And then in chapter 20, verses 17-19, to just before our text for today, on the road to Jerusalem, marching ever closer to the cross, Jesus says He will show them the reality that in His kingdom, it is the meek and the humble who really will be exalted. That the first really will be made the last and the last first. And He does so by predicting His own crucifixion and death. God's Word reads, "...as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He will be raised on the third day." So Jesus' teaching so far has been pretty clear, right? It's been pretty clear. Yet after hearing Jesus constantly value these attributes of meekness and humility and immediately after Jesus predict his own example of meekness and humility which would be expressed in his own crucifixion and death, James and John are concerned with receiving this glorious status for themselves. They are seeking to be the first, not the last. They are evidencing prideful ambition Rather than meekness and humility, they are missing the truth of what Jesus is teaching. And right after our Lord predicts his own crucifixion, his own ultimate act of servanthood on their behalf, these guys are seeking to secure their own honor. So we look at this request and we understand this is wildly inappropriate, right? And Jesus responds, verse 22. Look at your Bibles. Verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In verse 22, Jesus makes this statement, but then he asks a question. The statement is this, you do not know what you are asking. So these guys who offered this request, they had no clue. They didn't fully grasp the magnitude of this thing. They were just concerned with themselves. They didn't fully comprehend how ludicrous it was to make a selfish request of our selfless Lord. And then Jesus asked them a question, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now this language of drinking the cup, it refers to suffering, Right? On Matthew chapter 26 Jesus uses the same language when he prays to his father he says my father if it be possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you will Now not knowing what they're affirming again the disciples just proclaim like yes we are able we're able to drink from this cup They're totally clueless that they're affirming that they would drink from the same cup of suffering that Jesus would know And Jesus then in turn reveals that yes you will You'll drink of this cup. You will suffer for my name's sake if you're going to pursue being my disciple. Of course, we know that James is martyred, as we read, uh, by Herod Agrippa, as we read in Acts 12. And then John is exiled to the island of Patmos. So these guys really would drink from this cup of suffering. But isn't it ironic that these men who wanted to share in Christ's glory would instead share in his suffering? And as we will soon see, it's only through identifying with his suffering, with his sacrifice, with his humility, and with his death that they would ever be identified with his glory. So while the filthy mire of James and John's self-seeking just fills this scene, the brightness and the purity of Jesus' humility just stands in stark contrast. Look at what Jesus says. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. While these men are so chiefly concerned with themselves, Jesus humbly submits to the Father's will. According to Jesus, it's the Father alone who could grant such a request, and Jesus just concedes, right? Unlike James and John, Jesus is not reaching for more power, but He's willingly serving His Father. So when you juxtapose Jesus' humble submission over and against James and John's self-seeking, we just see this real contrast of motive and heart attitude. James and John are on this quest for status, while Jesus is on this quest to the cross. So as readers, Matthew leaves us with this feeling of disgust and outrage Uh, over James and John's self-promotion until we keep on reading and we realize this problem of self-promotion is a problem that is shared by others. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at them. The other ten disciples are angry. They've they've heard everything that's just taken place between John, James, Salome, uh, uh, and Jesus. They're angry. And don't be fooled. This is not a holy, pious anger. This is not fueled by this passion to restore their brothers to right thinking and to pure hearts. It's not what's happening here. This is a jealous anger displayed by ten men who wish they had made the request, who want to get a leg up in this race for greatness. So the other ten are just like James and John, pursuing their own glory, not Jesus's. So now we as readers are disgusted and outraged not only by James and John, but by all 12 of the disciples until we look inside and we realize that we are just like them. And that's true, isn't it? I know it's true of me. So it's, uh, it's wintertime in New England, and while I was born and raised in Massachusetts, I spent The bulk of my 32 years on this earth in Massachusetts. This is actually my first winter living right in the city of Boston. Uh, So I'm just learning many of the nuances of uh, city life that so many of you know so well. Um, For example, for the first time in my life, I get to take part in this citywide neighbor versus neighbor battle royale for shoveled out parking spaces. And uh, let me tell you, it has been quite an experience. Uh, when winter storm Hercules hit last month, I, like most of you, spent hours shoveling out our cars. We have two, two spaces in the piece of uh, road right in front of our house and just shoveling these things out. The plows come, they bury you back in. You shovel them out. The plows come, they bury you in. I mean, you, you guys did the same thing. You know what I'm saying. Um, so I did all of that, only to leave for the day with this thought in the back of my head all day long, just, ugh when I get home, nobody better have stolen my spot. So help me, if someone is parked in front of my house when I get home, and I have to shovel out another spot, oh man, it's going to be trouble. Just that thought in the back of my mind all day long. So finally I get home, I get parked, and the whole next 24 hours, my thoughts are so consumed with these two stupid parking spaces in front of my house. Uh, so what I've come to learn is every uh, winter storm, my landlady will hire a crew to come like plow out her driveway. And we don't park in the driveway, but their routine is to take a plow and take all the snow from the driveway and pull it out and then just dump it right in front of the house, right, pretty much right where we park. So uh, I got home, and they were uh, plowing out the driveway, and I do not know what came over me, um, but... For Until they were done with the job, which was quite a while, I'm like on the window, just looking out the window, just watching and waiting, just what are they going to do? They better not plow me in again. Oh man, it better not happen. They better not bury in our cars. And uh, Chris is in the background just like, what is wrong with you? What has gotten into you? It is not that important. It's not that big a deal. Just get away from the window. Uh, You should not be so concerned about this. But I was. The threat to my parking space was way too great. And the thought of enduring a scenario that resulted in what what wasn't as convenient for me as possible was just a terrible thought, so it just kept me at the window. It was not my finest hour. In the long run, whether I lost my spot or kept it or had to shovel it out again, it's not a big deal. But what was a big deal, what was going on in my heart, my heart was just so transfixed on securing what was best for me. And maybe uh, you can identify with that this morning. Maybe you can identify different ways that your hearts are just so overly concerned with putting yourself first. You see, like the disciples, we are fallen and we are sinful. Like Salome, we often prioritize people or things Above Jesus. Like these disciples, we often are just desiring our own exaltation. Oftentimes, our daily conversations, our thoughts, our actions display this worldview which says, greatness is found in that which serves me. Greatness is found in my own comfort and high standing. So the disciples have this problem happening in their hearts, right? Sin. They're too concerned with themselves. They're not concerned enough about Jesus. And we are just like them. So what is greatness? Well, so far the text has showed us that it's not found in our own status, our own honor. It's not found in putting ourselves first. So we're going to continue working through the text, trying to answer this question of greatness. And while these disciples are concerned with their own glory, uh, that uh, their prideful self-seeking is again placed in stark contrast to Jesus' idea of greatness. And Jesus' message is simple. Greatness in God's kingdom is measured by servanthood. Greatness in God's kingdom is measured by servanthood. Look at verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Powerful words. So in teaching his followers and redefining greatness for this mixed-up group of disciples who are uh, striving for greatness as the world Understands it, Jesus, the master communicator, starts by giving them a picture of what greatness looks like in their world, right? We see it clearly in verse 25. And for that in that verse, he's basically saying, Now here's how things are looking in your world. Uh, The terms rulers and great ones are likely referring to government officials and authorities and kings. And Jesus says that in the disciples' world, these Gentile rulers flaunt their power, they boast in their authority. Uh, They lord their high status over their subjects. And that is the power structure in the world of these disciples. Kings and officials who are considered the great ones. They rule over, they lord over, they bear down upon those beneath them. And this is just what the disciples have been after, isn't it? They wanted ruling authority over others. They want status for themselves. They're pursuing greatness like those in the world pursue greatness. And so, the question for us this morning is this Are you operating according to this power paradigm in the world? Like the disciples, are you eager to lord some form of authority over someone else? Do you secretly delight in the status of a new job or degree or relationship or purchase or achievement because our world tells you it elevates you above somebody else? Is that you? Is that what you are seeking? Is your delight bound to the glories of this place? So Jesus' teaching begins by uh, describing how the world views greatness. But this statement is only the beginning of what Jesus had to say. You see, after providing this picture of what greatness looks like in the world, uh, Jesus proclaims that greatness will look drastically different for His people. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now in response to the world's treatment of greatness, Jesus just makes this huge statement. It shall not be so among you. That is an imperative. That is a command from the Almighty Son of God. Jesus commands that we are to be different His plan is that His people would have a different set of values and goals and aspirations than the unbelieving world. This worldly concept of greatness, which is defined by authority and special position, is not for God's people. It is not for us. Jesus has something else for us. Jesus has something better for us. Here's what Jesus has for us. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now the ruler and the great one of verse 25 are now juxtaposed to the servant and the slave of these verses. And we know that while the rulers and the great ones are at the very top of the social ladder, a servant is one who is in a lowly position in this world. A slave in the disciples' world is at the very bottom of the social structure. Slaves and servants were considered last of least worth. These are the least impressive people. Yet Jesus commands us, His people, to pursue being slaves and servants rather than rulers and great ones. Why? Because true greatness, according to Jesus, is not found in lording authority over others. It's not found in putting ourselves first. It's found in service to God. I mean, how many times does a New Testament author Embrace this reversal and rightly uh, understand their identity in these terms. The Apostle Paul introduces his letter to the Romans, to the Philippians, and to Titus by introducing himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. He opens his letter to Philemon by saying he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. James opens his epistle by claiming he is a servant of God. James eventually figured this thing out, right? Peter opened 2nd Peter by saying he is a servant of Jesus, Jude the same thing and on and on and on. These men openly embraced this life of servant, uh, of service and they held tightly this identity as a servant or a slave of Christ. Paul, James, Peter, Jude, they all pursued greatness because they sought out a life of service to God and others. So we know that the power structures of this world do not model greatness for us, God's people. Culture does not define greatness for us, those who belong to Jesus. Unbelievers do not inform what greatness is for us, God's elect. No. Jesus models, He defines, He informs what greatness is for us. And Jesus says that greatness is found in humble service. He says the greatest will be a servant. He says the first will be considered a slave. So the apostles are getting it wrong, but Jesus loves them enough to correct their misconceptions. And we oftentimes get it wrong, but he loves us enough to set us straight this morning. So if you want to be great, if you're sitting here this morning and you feel like you're in the same position as that young man I described, wrestling with how to live a meaningful life, if that's you, and you want greatness, give your heart to Christ and your life to Him in His service. If you want to be first, make yourself last. Be as submissive as a slave to Christ. If you want to be lifted high, make yourself low. As lowly as a servant. What a radical redefining of everything we are conditioned to pursue and of everything we naturally strive to be. And that is life in God's kingdom. In his kingdom, the great ones serve. So we know that like these disciples, we oftentimes uh, seek after greatness for ourselves. Uh, But Jesus has taught us that uh, greatness in God's kingdom is actually defined by servanthood. Um, But Jesus' teaching actually goes further. It goes deeper deeper. In fact, Jesus will open the veils of understanding and with great intimacy and power reveal to us why He came in the first place. And what we will see is that Jesus came to exemplify greatness, which means He came to serve. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom, for many. First thing that pops out of this text is that uh, it just tells us that Jesus is our ultimate example of greatness, right? Uh, that little conjunction, even as, serves uh, functions to connect verse 28 to the previous verses, but it also serves to introduce Jesus as the ultimate example of servanthood for us. And as our example, as our model, the text says, He came not to be served, but to serve. And the remarkable thing about that statement is wrapped up in who Jesus is, right? So who is He? Who is Jesus Christ? Well, He's the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Word. He is the Messiah. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the King and the Lord of all. Romans 11.36 tells us that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Jesus describes Himself as the Son of Man. It's a title of kingship and supremacy picked up from Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. In short, Jesus is the greatest. He is the first. He is the highest. He is the only. He is the only one worthy of being served. Yet in all of His splendor and in all of His praiseworthiness, He condescended to dwell among men to endure scoffing and mocking and persecution and crucifixion so that He could best serve His people. Though He is so worthy to be served, He came instead to serve. It is amazing to take a step back to look at Jesus and what He has done for us. It is amazing. In Jesus, we see the first really did make himself the last. That the humble really was lifted high. Service was absolutely central to his coming, and it ought to be central to our lives as well. Now, I think I've shared this story before, but I've never in my life seen anyone follow the example of Christ's service like my friend Dave. Uh, Dave was a buddy of mine from seminary, and uh, my whole first year of seminary, I was engaged. And uh, I lived in this dirty, stinky, disgusting, old, rundown dorm named Pilgrim Hall with a bunch of dudes. And Dave was one of them. And uh, so we were in Pilgrim Hall. I got to be just great friends with Dave. And I remember there was this one night. It was uh, end of the fall semester. Everyone was stressed out, studying for exams and writing papers. It's freezing cold outside. And um, I just remember like, sitting at my desk, it was right next to my door, and the door was cracked open, and I'm studying, and uh, I just happened to look up, and I saw Dave, and uh, Dave's walking down the hall slowly, like an old man, and he's got two cups of tea in his hands, one in each hand, he's just walking slowly, doesn't want to spill the tea, just wondering, like, what in the world is he doing? He's walking down the hall, and then he turns the corner, and goes down the stairs, just stopped and was thinking like what is he doing no one ever went downstairs um we weren't really allowed to go downstairs i don't know what he's doing down there but then i just right back to the books so what was happening was this um the dorm was so gross every every night someone would come to clean the dorm and dave was bringing a, a cup of tea to the guy that was cleaning pilgrim hall that night and uh It was this cold winter evening, and this poor guy was stuck cleaning after a bunch of gross dudes. Just a terrible job. And I just remember feeling so sorry for him. And uh, he was probably going unnoticed by everybody, but not Dave. Uh, This poor guy could have been home, comfortable with his family, relaxing, warm. Instead, he's stuck there. And Dave had every, uh, every reason to just ignore this guy. Could have seen him as someone who was there to serve him. Someone whose presence in the dorm was only uh, to make his life a little bit more comfortable, but not Dave. Dave looked at this guy who was there cleaning our dorm that night and he saw this man as someone that God placed in his life so that Dave could serve him. To give this man the smallest glimpse of what Jesus is like. And this wasn't a one-time thing for Dave. Uh, He did that stuff all the time. He built strong relationships on campus with the cleaning crews with the groundskeepers, with the librarians, with the people who served us meals in the cafeteria because he would often bring them tea, ask questions, uh, talk with them, serve them as they worked. And that's just the type of guy Dave is, right? He always has his eyes open uh, for opportunities to serve Jesus through serving someone else. And I think, according to Jesus' conception of greatness, this simple gesture of heating up some water, dropping in a tea bag walking the cup down the hall, down the stairs, offering it to a stranger, saying, hey, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. How can I help? I don't think that's such a simple gesture after all. I think Jesus would say it's an act of greatness. Remember, Jesus isn't just telling us why he came so that we will have this understanding in our heads, so that we will have these propositions floating around in our minds. He's also telling us, revealing why He came, so that His purpose for coming would change our lives. The way we think, the way we relate to people, the way we live. Following Jesus' example means doing and saying things contrary to our sinful nature. It means putting ourselves last, putting others first. And by kingdom standards, there's greatness, even in these seemingly small gestures. So Christ models greatness for us. He is our example. He is the ultimate example of service. Of greatness. But He came not just to exemplify kingdom greatness for us. His servanthood is more than just our example. His servanthood is also the means by which sinners are saved. The means by which we are set free from our sin to actually honor God pursuing a life of service to Him, living a life of greatness. The only reason it's even possible is because of Jesus. We know this because the text said He came uh, to give His life as a ransom for many. Now that word ransom in the ancient world was often used in reference to someone purchasing the freedom of a slave with some form of payment. And isn't that exactly what Jesus has done? He sets slaves free free. We were enslaved by sin and death, and Jesus has set us free. If we repent of our sin, confess Him as Lord, enter into relationship with Him by grace through faith, He sets us free, enabling us to live this life of greatness through service to Him. It's an amazing thing. And this freedom which costs us nothing, cost Jesus a heavy ransom, it cost Him His life. And Jesus, willingly enduring persecution and crucifixion for us, uh, purchases three things for those who have confessed and placed faith in Jesus. uh, uh, God's wrath is satisfied, our sins are forgiven, and our freedom is secured. The ransom price is absolutely paid in full. And Matthew has been telling us that this was coming all along, right? Chapter 1 you remember verse 21? She will bear a son and you will not call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. That's exactly what he came to do. That's exactly what he did. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. That, as sinner, that we as sinners were deserving of God's wrath. But Jesus, the perfect and the pure Lamb of God, would be our great substitute. Talk about Humility. Talk about sacrifice. Talk about servanthood. Talk about greatness. It's all right there in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus makes it possible for us to realize a life of greatness through serving. His death frees us from our sin and allows us to live truly great lives. So how do we, this morning, respond to a powerful text like this. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. How do we respond? Well, if you sit here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the first step is to acknowledge Him. To confess your sins. To repent of them. To confess Him as Lord. To allow Him to His grace to just shower you, to clean you of your sins. To enter into relationship with God that your sin destroyed by the grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to call you to that today if you've never made that decision. And then with great gratitude, we praise Him, we glorify Him, we exalt Him, we worship Him, knowing that He gave His life so that we might live. And then with such thanksgiving, We follow his example of servanthood, serving God and serving others. And following Jesus' example of servanthood takes discipline, doesn't it? All this time you're wondering how this message fits into this series of spiritual discipline. Here we go. It takes discipline to follow God, to follow Christ's example of service. From uh, the big acts of service to the very small acts the life of servanthood requires that we train ourselves to think and to act as servants with just real intentionality and discipline. From inviting a coworker to dinner, to helping set up one of our movies in the park. From inciting a conversation with someone, just asking them how they're really doing, to giving a neighbor a ride to church. Uh, this life of servanthood could be as demanding as following a call to the mission field. It could be as Hard and as scary as saying no to opportunities that would advance your status here so you can make more room in your life to promote Jesus at home or in the workplace. Or it could be as small and as routine as heating up some water and giving a stranger a cup of tea. Serving God and others could take a million different shapes and forms in your life. And what I do not want to do is leave you with a to-do list this morning. I don't want to leave you with a checklist of service types of things that you have to do. What I do want to leave you with is standing awestruck before Jesus. The exalted one. The great servant. The one who is our example of servanthood. The one who is our motivation for servanthood. The one who sets us free for a life of servanthood. I want you to see him clearly and then set you loose in this world. To serve Him as He has served you. And I'm not saying that embracing this life of servanthood is easy. It is not. Have no, make no mistake there. It cost Jesus His life. It brought suffering to His disciples. But it is worthwhile and it is the path to greatness. Jesus came and He served you by hanging on a cross. How will you serve Him now? Will you serve Him now? Even if it means drinking from the cup of suffering. It's an important question each of us has to wrestle with, right? Remember, great ones serve because the great one came to serve. So what is greatness? That question just rang in his ears. His name was C.T. Studd. He was a celebrated British cricketer. He had a large inheritance to rely upon. He uh, was growing more and more famous by the day. And as his fame grew, the trappings of the world grew stronger as well. And he just reveled in all of this counterfeit greatness that was piling up in his life. Until one day in the late 1880s, he walked into a meeting house, much like you did today. And he heard Dwight Moody preaching the gospel. He sat there, he received the good news of Jesus Christ, and he left with this heart just pulsing, with this desire to honor God. So he labored over that question. What is greatness? And thankfully, by God's grace, after casting his eyes upon Christ, after taking in the cross, Stud found the answer to his question. True and lasting greatness is found in Christ. And to be great meant serving uh, like his Lord, and it meant serving his Lord. Stud came to realize that great ones serve because the great one came to serve. And after finding the answer to this question, which was just, he's just so struggled with, Stud gave up this life of fame to follow the example of Christ. He traveled to the mission field, to China, then to India, and to Africa to preach the gospel to the uh, unreached peoples of the world. He gave up his inheritance, his fortune, uh, for the sake of missions work and in the service of God and others. In fact, C.T. Studd would eventually come to a place where he would say things like this. How could I spend the best years of my life in living for the honors of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? And he would say, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. You see, only Jesus could have brought a man who was uh, living for his own fame to treasure the fame of God instead. Only Jesus could have freed a selfish sinner to find a life of greatness and selfless service to the Lord. So as we take in the splendor of Jesus Christ this morning, remember, great ones serve because the great one came to serve. Great ones serve because the great one came to serve. Let's pray. Jesus, it's a humbling thing to think about how You've served us. But Lord, we thank You that You served us with Your life, and we thank You for all that Your death and resurrection achieves for us. We thank You that You loved us so much to come walk this earth and die on our behalf. And Father, I pray that the truth of what You've done, the truth of who You are, would not be lost on us this morning. Let it sink in. Let it sink in deep, Lord. I pray that it will just sit in our hearts this week, I pray that it will change the way that we live. I pray that You will teach us to serve You and to serve others the way You have served us. So, Father, please, we pray for help. We ask You, please, to help us to uh, follow Your instruction, to follow Your example in just a way that just honors You. Lord, we love You. We want your glory. We want your praise. We want your exaltation above all other things. Share none of it with any of us. Take it for yourself. You're the only one worthy. We pray in Christ's precious and powerful name. Amen.